I don't know if you have played this game very often, but I know I like it when I have an opportunity to play it. It's that game where you see a, a picture zoomed in, and then you have to guess what the object is. You've played that game before. So I want to give you a couple up here. Uh, it appears from the 945 service that this is actually not going to be a challenge at all. But let's see what happens. Take a look uh, at this first slide. I, now, you know what that is. Here it comes. Any idea what that is? A map? Okay. All right, take a look. Here it is. A cantaloupe. All right. All right, take a look at this next one. Any idea what that might be? Okay, you guys are really good. So I'm just dumb. Because when I saw this, I'm like, I had no idea. It's spaghetti. That's right. So you got good job. Good job. All right. So that illustrates what's happening in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is putting together a series of pictures, telling these micro stories, but he weaves them in together to pull out themes, to emphasize different parts of who Jesus is. And today we're going to take a look at two of these scenes. Think of them as being these snapshots, these zoomed-in pictures that are going to help us see the whole. That's what I want us how I want us to understand the two, the two zoomed-in pictures. We're in the last part of Jesus' life. We're within a week of his death on this Roman cross and then his resurrection. And 30% of the Gospel of Mark is the last week of his life. In every one of the Gospels, the, uh, you have a large portion of each of those written accounts is the last week of Jesus' life. And so you have these zoomed-in pictures along the way in these last chapters, either in a scene where Jesus is doing something, maybe he's teaching something, or he's giving a long monologue. But each of these zoomed-in pictures, you piece together for the whole. And so today, we look at two of them. So we're going to take in two zoomed-in pictures, and I hope you see not only how are they tied together, but also how they give us a vision of the whole. We start Mark chapter 11, verse 27. We're picking up the day after he has just cleansed the temple. He's walked into the temple. He's overturned tables. He's sent out the money changers. And then he left the city. He comes back the next day. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem. While Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared that the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. All right, so that just closes that, that first picture for this, for this Sunday. That's that first picture. And here, Jesus is being questioned by people who hold authority in the temple. These are the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law, all who have authority. And they've just experienced Jesus casting out the money changers he, and really disrupting the order of the temple on one of the most holy of, uh, of holidays, the Passover. 
And so they want to know, where did you get that authority, Jesus? And they're probably thinking, did someone give that to you? Did the chief priest in Jerusalem cut a deal with Jesus behind the scenes that we didn't know about? That could be something possibly in play. Or most likely is they know Jesus doesn't have authority to do this, at least not from some human power. Therefore, they're now going to catch him. And Jesus, interesting enough, doesn't answer them directly. You see, the teachers of the law, the elders, the the chief priests, they're, they're looking at Jesus wondering where he got the authority to do that thing, this event. Where in the world did he get the authority to cast out the money changers? But Jesus doesn't understand his authority as an event. He understands his authority as his identity. So Jesus has authority because of who he is, not because of some paperwork or some uh, edict from somewhere else. He's received it because of who he is. And what he does then is he hyperlinks back to a watershed moment where we see clearly who Jesus is. And it's going to tell us everything we need to know about what's happening right now in Jerusalem. And at, that is, at the time Jesus is, uh, is making his way to the cross. And so what he does is he takes us back to the baptism of John. This is where John the Baptist is baptizing people. It is that moment where he's preparing the way for the Lord's anointed. And you remember that this is how Mark starts his gospel. This is how he starts the account. He doesn't start his account with the birth of Jesus. He starts it with the baptism of John. John the Baptist comes, cutting a new way for this anointed king. Then Jesus comes. I want to pick up there in the story because Jesus here in the temple is hyperlinking back to this moment to say something about his identity, which says everything we need to know about his authority. Take a look, Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. There's a lot happening there at the beginning of the gospel. You remember another moment in the Old Testament where we see God breaking open from the heavens to show his presence with his people? Well, we see it in Exodus in two clear places. Right after they come out of Egypt, they establish the tabernacle, and God is this pillar of fire that comes down into the holy of holies. It's a physical manifestation from the heavens to declare his presence. Presence. We also see it when Moses goes on to the mountain and we see a physical manifestation of the presence of God in the cloud that Moses walks into. In both of these places, the opening of the heavens reveals God is there, heaven and earth coming back together, just as it was supposed to be in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. And now here at the baptism of Jesus, you have another opening where heaven and earth are coming together. And they're going to come together in a person for the first time. And just to make sure we understand what's happening, a voice comes from the heavens. It's God the Father who declares, you are my son. Now when that voice comes, when God the Father speaks those words, 
It is a hyperlink. I hope you see how all these things begin to tie. It's a hyperlink to one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament to promise a coming king. It was a passage they would use every time an Israelite king was, in, was enthroned in Israel. But it always pointed to a day when the king would come. And so when Jesus in the temple says that his authority is tied to the baptism, his baptism, that baptism is then tied to this famous passage about a coming king. And all of these hyperlinks are going to say something about who he is, his authority, and what it means for that moment. And it's going to tell us something about reality. Take a look at that real famous passage, Psalm 2, the second psalm, Psalm 2. Now, it starts with verse, we're going to pick up in verse 4, the, heavens enthron- the one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. There in verse 4, the them are rebellious kings on earth who reject God's authority. We'll pick up verse 5. He, God, rebukes the rebellious kings in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. When the father at Jesus' baptism declares, you are my son, it hyperlinks to this passage where there was the vision of a day when God the Father would declare to one king, the final king, go, take your throne and rule the earth forever and ever. Jesus was that king. Jesus was the anointed one. Jesus was the final promised king. There's no more kings after Jesus. And do you see that the rulers of the earth, they will be judged according to how they relate to this king. You see, now that this king, this son, is enthroned, now ruling the earth, the earth his inheritance, those kings should be wise and submit. That's what this phrase, kiss the son. Submit to his authority. Or if you decide to continue to rebel, it will be to your own destruction. The king, the son is the line in the sand. So Psalm 2 looks forward to the day when one anointed one would come, the final king. At Jesus' baptism, heaven and earth are being brought together in one person, and then the voice from heaven declares, this is my son, which brings back this whole vision from Psalm 2 into that very moment. This is the moment. This is the time where a line has been drawn in the sand. And now in the temple, as Jesus is clearing it, coming with authority, he reminds them to link back to his baptism, which linked to Psalm 2, all of it to say he's the final king. Where did he get his authority? In himself. He carries the authority because he is the final one. 
Now that has really big implications. Because from this, at this point, you go to the temple, the physical building to have a relationship with God. And now Jesus declares judgment on that temple. This is the final warning for Jerusalem and Israel. Their exile, their exile will finally come to its end. They're going to run their evil to its end. You know how they'll do that. Here in the next few days, they will actually crucify the king. But we get ahead of ourselves. In that moment, in that moment, Jesus declares, no more warnings, no more kings. I am the authority. Which means now you relate to reality differently. I want to say it this way. Take a look. I just want to summarize everything we've just said in this, this brief statement. No longer will people's relationship to God be determined by their worship and sacrifices at the temple. The line in the sand is now the relationship to the, to the Son, the anointed king. Everything's going to hinge on the Son. No more prophets. No more kings. Everything relates now to the anointed one. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is now going to tell a story in our second scene. It's that second zoomed-in picture. But you're not going to understand this picture, the second picture, where we'll pick up in chapter 12 unless you understand what we just did. Jesus is going to make it very clear there's no one else coming. Reality will now be defined by your relationship to this king. That's it. Take a look. Chapter 12, we'll pick up with verse 1 and take a look at this story. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit in the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Now at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, sent him out, sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, and some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, killed him, threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now you see the foreshadowing. Tension is going to continue to build in the story. So you be ready as we continue to walk through Mark. Tension will build. And that is the theme we're going to find woven into the rest of the story. But here in the parable... Jesus is making the same point he just made about the baptism of John. Now he says it even more clearly. And the teachers of the law, the elders, and the chief priests, they all understand what he's doing. They are the ones that are doing violence to the one God sends. They happen to just really disagree with what he's saying. But here, as what we just saw in the baptism of John, it is the final one that is sent. And this is the son. It is the heir of all things. He is the one that is last, and yet they kill him. There's no one else. Like the, the owner of the vineyard is not sending anyone else. The judgment comes based on the relationship to the last one that he sent. 
He didn't bring judgment when they beat up one, one of his servants. They didn't, he didn't bring judgment when he killed one. He just kept sending them until the last one. And so Israel's coming up against its final breath. Everything comes down to the relationship with the Son. Interestingly, other parts of the New Testament hyperlink back to this parable and to the very thing Jesus just said about John's baptism, this thing that the Son is the, final sign, the ultimate and final sign. Take a look at how the Hebrew writer, written primarily to Jews, look at how the Hebrew writer starts this long letter. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Hebrew writer then is going to make a really long and detailed case for everything in the world hinging on Jesus. There's no one else coming. It's Jesus. And so reality is now defined by how you stand with Jesus. And that's a really big point being made here on this day in Jerusalem that we read about in the Gospel of Mark. As they come with their questions and bring their judgment, Jesus turns the tables and says, I am the one who will judge you. Now, not in some mean way. This is, not, this is not Jesus throwing a temper tantrum. This is Jesus revealing the way things really are. If you run around in the world thinking 2 plus 2 equals 5, reality will hit you eventually. It'll probably hit you in your checkbook. It'll probably hit you somewhere else. It will eventually catch up with you if you don't know how to do math at some point. Amen, Abby? Amen. Amen. You were trying to do that for years, teach your students that. That's right. And that you understand, if you don't think gravity is real, just try to live without recognizing it. Eventually, reality will hit you, or you will hit it, something like that. You get the point. Jesus is the hinge for everything. So what in the world does this have to do with today? So let's just take those two zoomed-in pictures that give us a lot to say about who Jesus is, and let's just make application for today. And I want to do that in two ways. I want to go broad and I just want to bring it down to a personal level. So at a broad level, I actually think this has something to say about catastrophes in our world. And we'll just take the coronavirus as the one we deal with today. So in our, in our day, there are a lot of people trying to interpret what's going on in the coronavirus. There's conspiracy theories. Christians are saying it's this. Other religious groups are saying it's that. I really want to just focus on those that say God has done this to pull his people back. Now, that sounds, sounds quite spiritual. But when we say that, we're missing the very thing we should have seen in these two pictures in the Gospel of Mark, in these two scenes where Jesus pulls them back to the, John's baptism, and then he tells a parable about the vineyard and the tenants. I mean, we're going to go with a, a lengthy quote. I want to show you where it's coming from. So this book recently came out by a British biblical scholar, God in the Pandemic, a Christian reflection on the coronavirus and its aftermath by N.T. Wright. Now, N.T. Wright is a prolific scholar. Right now I'm working on a 1,600-page book of his. Uh, at some point before I die, I will finish it. Uh, long book, and that's only one volume and a multi-volume set. So he is not a man who typically steps into current events and writes a small book like this. 
So when a Bible scholar like that steps into a current event like the coronavirus, he has my attention. Very interested to how he sees this because he's not prone to live in the news cycle. And N.T. Wright makes an argument that is much broader than the 24-hour breaking news banner on your TV. He has this to say. I'm going to go with a lengthy quote. I think it's instructive for us in application. For Jesus' first followers then, his death and resurrection were now the single ultimate sign. God has spoken through the Son once and for all for us to try to read God's secret code off the pages of the newspapers may look clever. We may even get a reputation for spiritual insight, but actually we are doing it because we have forgotten where the true key to understanding is now to be found. The New Testament insists that we put Jesus at the center of the picture and work outwards from there. The minute we find ourselves looking at the world around us and jumping to conclusions about what God and uh, about God and what he might be doing, but without looking carefully at Jesus, we are in serious danger of forcing through an interpretation which might look attractive, but which actually screens Jesus out of the picture. There's this idea that that God uses catastrophes in our day, like the coronavirus, to call his people back. But the problem is that that gives an interpretation that the vineyard owner keeps sending servants. God doesn't have to keep sending servants. He has sent the sign. He sent the one around which everything hinges. He sent Jesus. It's interesting that when Paul went to Athens, the Apostle Paul went to Athens in ancient Greece and preached in front of the philosophers a message to call them to God that he had in front of him a list of catastrophes that had happened in the Roman Empire over the last decade. And he could have used any one of them to say, this famine, this brutality, this sickness, literally, this, this pandemic, this military war, this brutality. He could have picked any of the catastrophes and said, look, God's calling you back to himself. But Paul didn't do any of that. Paul never once mentioned one of those current events. He told the story of Jesus. Every time we see people being called to God in the book of Acts, every person that preaches tells the story of Jesus. Not once. Not once does anyone give a sermon where they pull in, into the sermon a current event to show what God is doing in their day. They always use Jesus. They always use Jesus as the hinge. Reality now hinges on your relationship to the Son, the final king, the one to rule heaven and earth. And so I think that's instructive for us. I have no idea what's going on in the coronavirus. There are probably things going on we don't, have, we, we don't see. I bet there's manipulation under the surface we would rather not know about. But I'll tell you this, God is not using the coronavirus any more than he uses the basic message of Jesus. And so we just be careful that we don't try to interpret what God's doing and forget what he has already done as the final moment in Jesus to call the world to himself. Now let's make it personal. 
Let's make it personal. So that's kind of a broad application. This is the question we need to be asking at a personal level. Where do we stand with Jesus? So this would be like if Jesus is the hinge of all reality, then you need to be asking, where do you stand with the hinge? Where do you stand with, with the center of reality? Are we moving towards Jesus or away from him? Now I'm going to put up uh, a series of circles. This is the third time I have used these circles in our time together. That is my whole time here at East 10th. And I guarantee you, you're going to see them again in the years to come because repetition is a good teacher. And these, these are good reminders. So I want us to think about this question as it relates to how we relate to Jesus by putting up these circles. We're going to start with the first one here. Jesus in the center of the circle represents salvation. That is being in relationship with Jesus. And that arrow that sits on the outside of the circle represents being outside of Jesus. But saved or unsaved is never just static. It's dynamic. Just like any relationship. And so there are people in our world that are not saved. That is, they're not in relationship with Jesus and actually they're running away from him. They don't want anything to do with him. And that takes on a lot of different forms. Please understand, I'm not going to run through the list of ways people run away from Jesus. And they run away from God in a number of ways. But I want to be clear, there are people running away from Jesus. Now, this one, this, this next one is a little more complicated. You have people that are on the outside of a relationship with Jesus, but they're moving towards him. They're searching. I think about the many stories that we've already seen in the Gospel of Mark, where even some that are non-Jews... They're not in the covenant of God's people. And yet, what do we find? That they are actually the ones moving the, the, with the most speed to Jesus. And then they get him. God will be calling those people. But I just want to be careful because sometimes we can look at people and say, ah, look at that heathen, they must be going to hell. We are so quick sometimes to throw judgments. And I'm not saying that people aren't saved. What I'm saying is you have some people that are not yet in relationship with Jesus, but give them another year, and they'll be tied to his life. So there are a lot of people out there, a lot of people in our town that are moving to Jesus. So let's make sure we love and we show compassion, because you know people like this. You may not know you know them, but you know people like this. They don't yet know Jesus, but man, they're searching. All right, let's go with this next one. So you have some people that are inside of Jesus they have repented of their sins. They've turned around. They've been immersed, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. And they are in relationship with Jesus, part of the new covenant. And they are continuing to walk to Jesus. Now, this isn't like this. Don't think of this circle as the super Christians. This is like, this is like any relationship works. You're growing closer. Doesn't mean you don't have your valleys, but you're growing closer. Just think of, I mean, this is how like marriages work, friendships work. This is how boyfriend, girlfriends work. Like you get closer to one another. This is the way it works with Jesus too. I am not calling Jesus a boyfriend. I am saying this is the way a relationship works. And then you have that last circle. You have those that are inside of Jesus. They've been saved, but they're running away from him. Now you're going to get into this big theological debate here of can you run outside the circle? I don't know if you can run outside the circle. There's a, there are multiple sides to that question. But I'll tell you this. As far as I can tell from Scripture, God will not force anyone to spend eternity with him who doesn't want to be with him. Can you imagine God forcing someone to be with him who doesn't like him? That would be hell. 
You ever hung out with someone you don't like? Imagine being full of their presence and you can't get away from it. Yeah, now you're starting to get there. So sometimes when we say, well, will they be in heaven or not? Well, heaven's not Disneyland, so let's, let's rework that. It is fundamentally the fullness of a relationship with God and his people where heaven and earth are brought together. And there are some people that are running away from that because they don't want it. So I don't know if these people lose their salvation or not. That's for a much deeper, longer conversation. I think there's some things Scripture can teach us. But the point is to evaluate whether you're running to Jesus or you're running away from him. That's really what you need to be thinking about. Something I need to be thinking about. All right, let's, make a, let's pull it down to a next step. Something you and I can do like this week. Make, con, or make practical decisions that move you towards Jesus. For some of you, that might be like reading your Bible. That'd be a concrete, practical step. You don't read your Bible much, read your Bible. Or it might be sitting alone for one minute each day and praying. It might be calling up a friend and just asking how they're doing because you want to show them you love them. Showing love is actually a way of moving closer to Jesus. So maybe you just sacrifice for someone else. Maybe you give generously in a, to, to someone in need. I don't just mean with money. Maybe you're cooking them a meal. I don't know. This can take a thousand different forms. The point is that you are conscious of doing something to move closer to Jesus. That's the goal here. Don't overcomplicate this. You're not trying to run a marathon in a week. You're moving closer to Jesus. And that's what God is looking for. Why? Because Jesus is the hinge around which everything is judged. He is the center of reality. And it's fundamentally a relationship. So that's why Paul eventually will say, when you have love, there's no need for law. Love. That's relationship. All right, so we're going to sit with that this week. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for these two scenes, these two pictures zoomed in, giving clarity that your son Jesus, the anointed king, the heir of all things, the final and ultimate sign, sits at the center of all reality. Help us. Help us in our relationship with him. We'll need that help. We pray that under his authority and in his power. And together we say, amen.